Stay for Breakfast. I am your host, Phil Coover of the law firm Shankanis Tepper Campbell, and we have a lot to cover today. This is a very exciting podcast episode. I just got back from ICSC Recon Conference in Las Vegas. So that is the International Council of Shopping Centers, and that is a conference that happens every year, and it is an enormous conference, and it, it occurs in May of each year. And there's 37,000 attendees, and I gotta say, it is the largest conference I have ever seen. So we are going to, I'm gonna wanna talk about that briefly and just give a recap of what transpired, and then also talk about, uh, and then we'll move on to our guests, Andrew Calcutt and George Freeman of Sleeping Bear Capital. So I found this to be an incredibly exciting and rewarding experience to go to this conference. It is a conference made up of retailers, of landlords, of institutional investors, and really every company that you could possibly think of. When you walk through the leasing mall, you see every company that you see at shopping centers. It's almost like going to the mall. So you see McDonald's and Sabaro and Jersey Mike Subs and Jimmy John's and a lot of them have free samples, except for Starbucks, which oddly didn't have any coffee. But uh, you walk through these malls and these things are just football fields upon football fields of football fields. So there's one mall for the uh, retailers and the brokers. Um, there's another section for vendors and which are companies that have add-on services they provide to the real estate industry. There's another uh, section of the big institutional investors and the REITs that have a lot of real estate needs. And so all of these real estate professionals come together and they all have meetings that are just lined up all day where they're meeting with clients, potential clients, and uh, their business partners. And I don't mean business partners in the sense of their own internal partners, I mean that all of these companies have partnerships and relationships with other companies that provide services that they all work together in symbiosis. And so they meet together to talk about uh, current projects they're working on, large scale projects, long term projects, big picture projects of how they're going to work together and how they can um, provide strategic alliances, if you want to use a, some real estate jargon, to move forward in, in, over the next year. And it, it's a great opportunity for everyone to come together. So I found it a very rewarding experience to go to. You know, I would walk around and as a, as a lawyer, we would go out at night with some of the um, people in the industry and people would say, well, what'd you do today? And I went to the conference. I find that that the conference was an invigorating place to go. You're in this room full of people. It's just thriving and it's vibrant and everyone is engaged in transactions and doing deals and getting to know each other. And I walked around, I saw Serena Williams speak and I didn't realize she was pregnant when she won the Australian Open, which was incredible. Uh, I saw Steve Wozniak speak. He was also an excellent speaker. I saw... Um, the, I think he's the president of ICSC, Tom McGee, gave a great speech about where we are in the retail industry. And he took on the topic of online sales being a threat to retail going forward. And he addressed that right on, but he also uh, did it in a thoughtful, nuanced approach where he's recognized that it's a challenge, but he also explained reasons why retail is not dead, despite all the headlines that you see. Um, 
his his biggest point there was that the 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 best sales years or the the years where a person is more apt to to buy products is they're in their thirty their 30s to 50s and that's usually when they have kids and um, the baby boomers have aged out of that generation and the baby boomers were statistically a very large group and now the millennials are aging into that generation and now they're starting to buy homes and they're starting to uh, buy a lot of products and so his his point was that online sales um, and he had various statistics I'm just taking two points, but it was a very thoughtful approach. But his point was that millennials are coming, and that is a a very large demographic. There's actually more millennials now than there are baby boomers. And uh, there's a couple other reasons why he thought that while retail is shifting, uh, brick and mortar stores will be around for a long time, and they provide a lot of value, and they'll still see a lot of sales. So I thought that that was a strong leadership for him to take that issue straight on. But anyway, I found it very rewarding to walk around and just see what everyone is doing. The the Chainlinks area, Chainlinks is a company which is actually a collect, a lot of companies are partners and so they all work together and that area was one of the larger areas and it was almost like a, a more civilized trading room floor from the 80s where you see all the traders walk around. Everyone's doing meetings. There's just tables and tables and rows and rows of tables of people getting together to talk about projects. I also thought it was interesting just to walk around and see um, a lot of the companies had dioramas or they had big models that's a better word for it of what pro of major projects that they're working on that they like to showcase and so i saw the mccaffrey interest has the big project going on in lincoln park right now which is the old children's hospital they've knocked down and they had a big model of what it's going to look like uh, when they put in the new towers and the new retail and the um Apartments, I believe that they're going to be, and some condos that they're putting up in that area, and that was really cool to see. But I, I guess the question is, is, is why go there? If, especially if you're an attorney like me, uh, that you don't have a lot of, you have reason to meet and connect with the industry, but I found it extremely valuable just spending the time to get to know your clients. And I don't mean just directly your clients. I mean, in the broader term, the industry that you service and that you're a part of. And just to spend less time worrying about how to build that service and that industry and more time just getting to know the people because what they're working on is incredible things. They're doing amazing projects out there and they're taking dirt and they're turning it into something useful and valuable and it's exciting to be around those people that are putting these incredible projects together i found it invigorating to do so and and too often in law i see that there's this ivory tower mentality where i'm the lawyer and i sit in an office and you send me the work and i'll i'll do the paper and I'll, I'll revise the documents and I'll send it out to you and I know best. And I found it um, rewarding, to use the word again, to just take off the legal hat for a second and just spend time out there learning about the industry and just recognizing that there's a lot out there that's going on that you don't know about. And I don't want to 
And so I think it's important for lawyers to spend the time, whatever industry they are. I mean, it's not just for lawyers. It's probably for all service providers. It's just to spend the time getting to know the people in the industry that you're working with so that you understand them better and they understand you and you can just learn from them and just spend several days learning from them and listening to what they have to say and to what they're working on because it will give you a lot of context and it will make your work more uh, rewarding and you'll be better at it because you'll understand the goals and the objectives better. One of my favorite conversations I had actually was just just as an example of walking around and just listening and learning was I, I talked to this guy who works for the new Under Armour campus. Uh, he works for a construction and development company that's the, the family that owns Under Armour is building this, I think it's, it's just an enormous, I don't remember the acreage, um, project right on the waterfront in Baltimore, Maryland. And then Under Armour is going to have a huge chunk of those that acreage for their campus and then there's some 60 million dollar whiskey distillery that's going in right next to it and there's going to be condos and there's going to be upscale retail and they had this huge diagram of what it was going to look like and it lit up and it, and it did all these sorts of things when you took a look at it and I thought that that was secretly one of the coolest things I saw because I sat there and talked to this guy for probably 20, 30 minutes, and he didn't even ask me for my business card. I didn't ask him for his business card. It was pure, and it was natural. It was just two people talking about this really cool, really interesting project that was being developed. Um, similarly, I would encourage you to look up the Mark Thal Rotterdam project in, in the Netherlands. That w shopping center won the best of the best award and I took a virtual reality tour. I had never done a virtual reality experience. I took a tour of that shopping center. It is worth your time to Google it. Um, a picture is going to do a lot better at explaining what it looks like than I am. But it's, uh, it's truly a magnificent structure and it's an outdoor food center. So I would encourage you to Google that and take a look at it. And uh, I also just wanna say a couple thank yous. So I just wanna thank Shank Annis Tepper Campbell for sending me to this conference. And I wanna thank Mid-America, uh, the Mid-America Asset Management, Mid-America Real Estate Corporation, Mid-America Companies for putting on a remarkable and lovely reception. And also on a different night, I went to the uh, the Wind Trust and the Thompson Coburn reception. And I wanna thank them uh, for their generosity as well. So moving on to our topic of today, we have Andrew Kalka and George Freeman of Sleeping Bear Capital. And the theme that I want to take forward with from the conference is partnerships. What I noticed while I was at this conference is that this industry is full of partnerships. And oftentimes people say commercial real estate is connections industry, but I think that that stops a little short of what it truly is. What it truly is is partnerships. And you have people that come together to, they're either have, they have their partners that they work with for their companies, and then they also have partnerships with other companies and it is incredible to see what these partnerships can accomplish when while working together. I like talking to Andrew and George because they have a great partnership. Now it helps that they've known each other 
for 20, 30 years, and they, they go a long ways back, so they have a lot of trust between each other, but they both come from different areas. Andrew is uh, an attorney by trade, and George is in the financial services industry, and they have a great partnership because they're they're both very well accomplished in their own right before starting this real estate company, and they have different skills that they bring to the table, but uh, their partnership is a strong one, and we, it becomes apparent when you talk to them that they do everything they have a strategic plan. They have the discipline to stick to their plan. And they do everything with a lot of thought. And they're a great partnership. And so you can tell that they respect one another, that they trust one another. And a lot of people have dreams and visions of getting into real estate. And I would just say that when you to listen to this podcast, you can tell that jumping into investing in real estate requires a lot of work, a lot of thought, and a lot of care. And you should do it um, with a good partner if you have one that you can find. And so I hope that you enjoy the discussion with Andrew and George and Sleeping Bear Capital. And uh, thanks for listening. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast, and I am joined today by Sleeping Bear Capital LLC. So I have Andrew Calcutt and George Freeman, who are the uh, two co-founders and principals of the firm. And uh, we're joined to talk about what their what their vision is, what their goal is, how the company is. So, gentlemen, how, how long has the company been in business? Uh, four years, uh, not directly or always under the name Sleeping Bear Capital, uh, but the mission, the foundation of the company. Um, we bought our first property in August of 2012. And let's talk about the name, Sleeping Bear Capital. Is that, I'm assuming that's a, a nod to Northern Michigan? It is. We're both uh, from Traverse City, Michigan, uh, small town America. Uh, moved to Chicago, the big city, for a little more action. <laughs> Well, uh, where are you guys finding your action? Where, where do you, what are you looking for in terms of um, properties, and what is your business trying to accomplish? Uh, morning, Phil. Uh, it's basically been the same thing we've done since the beginning, which we're trying to find quality um, buildings that, well, quality in the end. Trying to find buildings that, you know, in the maybe six to thirty-unit range. Um, in some of the, you know, quote unquote, tougher neighborhoods of Chicago, um, ones that we can buy at the right price, so that we can kind of execute our model, which is full full renovations of these these buildings to create a best in class style apartment um, compared to the rest of the product in these areas. So, um, a, f- a little bit fewer opportunities today than there were four years ago, but um, we still think there's there's quite a bit out there to to go after. So let's talk about that, because I was talking with Andrew before you came in, George. Um, So you guys are looking for properties that's mostly on the south side of Chicago, residential units. Um, Residential properties, like you said, six to 30 units. But you're seeing out there that it's a little bit harder to find deals. Um, Why is that? 
foreclosure rates are, are down across the market. Uh, it's harder to find distressed and, and REO properties from banks. The inventory with banks who we traditionally buy our deals from um, as REO property, um, the, the inventory in their systems is, is way down and it's been declining for the last four years. So now we're looking at uh, loans to purchase where we finish the foreclosure for banks. Um, we've always looked at those deals, but they weren't necessary to do. Um, but now they're getting more necessary because it's harder to find the actual REO assets. So we would be the ones to, to take them um, through the foreclosure process uh, and take the property back as the bank and then keep it and renovate it and manage it long term. A lot of the low-hanging fruit have been gone for quite some time. So what we're seeing is it's just uh, more time, more deals that you have to sift through in order to find one that's you know feasible and, and a quality investment. Um, you know, four years ago it might it might have been we look at twenty deals for every two or three that we you know have a, a real shot of you know diving into and potentially purchasing. Now that number is probably two or three times that. So it's just a it's a bigger pile of. Um, well, it's a smaller pile, but more deals that we have to look through that we have to kind of spend time on um, with a smaller percentage that are that are deals that fit our in our buckets of, of what we want to be doing. To, to add more specificity, I've, I looked at my spreadsheet yesterday. I think there were uh, about 85 deals that we've uh, analyzed and uh, we've done one since I started tracking those 85 deals. Uh, I, I think that's a testament to your guys' approach. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast is because you guys have this very thoughtful, measured approach. You know what you're going for. And you, you've selected uh, the south side of Chicago to invest in. And, and, and that's sort of your model and where you're looking. And I, I know that that was done by choice. And so... I've, we've had people on the podcast to talk about the competition in downtown, the north side, the west loop, but it's interesting. So you guys are seeing a lot of competition down on the south side for distressed properties. But are you, um, are you looking for properties that are completely abandoned in order to renovate them and then lease them out? Or are you looking for properties that are partially rented out, they're just good value? So I'll give you an example. Today I went and looked at two properties. Uh, the first property uh, was completely vacant. It's been vacant for at least three years. Uh, it's a 10 unit apartment building, uh, brick, three stories, uh, mostly two bedroom units. Uh, it's in Englewood, a very difficult pocket of Englewood. Uh, a lot of abandoned homes around there abandoned commercial buildings around there. There's an abandoned church that abuts the property. Uh, so that's one building. Then from there, I went further west into Chicago Lawn and looked at another 10-unit apartment building, which had uh, 
eight occupied units and two vacant units. Um, pretty good condition. Uh, it's being sold by a Canadian group that got very aggressive about four years ago in the Chicago market because they could not find the returns in, in Canada. Uh, they linked up with a property management company and a construction company in Chicago. And this building has not performed the way they, they expected. And so they're, they're getting rid of it. Uh, the first one that I mentioned, the, the abandoned property, uh, was taken over by a nonprofit uh, bank um, through a contract with the city. Uh, to take it back and find a, an owner for it. It's a much more challenging deal, uh, the abandoned property. It's going to take a lot more money to renovate it uh, and a lot more energy to, to manage it and, and fill it up with people. So what attracts you to those types of properties? Well, I mean, so we can kind of back up and, and talk a little bit more about what we do when we buy a yeah. property. I mean, our perfect deal is dollars and cents economics put aside for a minute is, um, you know, we've got a, a vacant secure property um, with a mix of two and three bedroom units in a, in a pocket that we are comfortable in. And we can go in and do a pretty thorough renovation of the property. So that's, um, you know, typically we're tearing the roof off or replacing 100% of the windows. We're um, either completely refinishing or replacing all of the floors in the, in the building. We're gutting all the kitchens and bathrooms, putting in, um, you know, espresso ply box cabinets and granite countertops and really nice tile bathrooms with new vanities and um, making these apartments really, really nice, uh, which is uncommon for a lot of these neighborhoods. So our goal is to attract, you know, have the best units in the neighborhood and attract the best tenants in these neighborhoods because we have the best, the best apartments. Sure. Um, and then you have people that, that get in these great apartments and they're good people and they, they know that 90% of the product in the markets in the, in the areas they want to live is not the quality that we have, so they don't ever want to leave. That's kind of how our high-level model works. So we can maintain um, occupancy levels that are probably more on par with uh, much less distressed neighborhoods than, than the ones that, you know, compared to our a lot of our competition in those markets. And through George is, is the uh, numbers tracker. Um, I, I say I'm right. more, more the muscle with a smaller brain. Um, <laughs> but through the numbers tracking that, that he does and the, the bookkeeping, you know, we keep our, our economic uh, occupancy rate above 98%, which versus our competition, uh, you know, we'd be in the top one percentile uh, of our competition in terms of vacancy yeah I would imagine across the city you'd be in pretty I, I high think, regard there I think from a you know apartment buildings in in uh, Bucktown Lincoln Park the West Loop uh, you know we, we'd have similar vacancy rates to, to uh, neighborhoods like that uh, but that's also a testament to our social model uh, which is uh, you know changing neighborhoods reviving neighborhoods, revitalizing neighborhoods, uh, making them better. Um, you know, for decades and decades, um, people have been talking about a high need for affordable housing in the United States, quality affordable housing, and you know, 
were providing that product um, for a long time uh, since somebody was able to take a picture of a tenement home back in the 1920s you know affordable housing really was a need a necessity but uh, you know we built projects uh, that turned into uh, disaster zones, um, right. literal war zones. Um, you know, now that's passe. Uh, we, humanity, uh, we realized that, that projects were not the answer to the problem. Uh, the answer to the problem is, is quality affordable housing that's not a high rise. Um, you know, we're talking about low rise residential properties uh, where people can live and, and not have to fear that an entire floor is going to be taken over by a gang. Um, and so, you know, here we are now in 2017, 100 years, uh, almost 100 years post-depression, and, and um, you know, we're, we're providing quality, affordable housing. Um, so there's a social model there, and there's also an economic model. Um, they both work together in synergy. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love what you guys are doing. You're buying property in places that really need it, and you're building them up and renovating them to quality living standards and then leasing them out. And as long as you get the good tenants in there, which you've been able to do, it uh, works for both all parties. Yeah, and the other piece of that puzzle is, um, is the property management side. So I think our, our model would completely fall on its face, even with the best units in the market, if we didn't manage them well, if we didn't have quality property management. So if we went out and you know, Andrew and I didn't want to ever drive to the south side after we bought a building. You know, we hired some some uh, mediocre company to try and manage our our properties. Um, it would it would not go well. So you know, these are hands-on type type properties. And um, again, as it is with the quality of our of our units, a lot of the, the people in those neighborhoods don't know what quality management is. They they deal with either people that don't know what they're doing or people that don't seem to care about their tenants and, and providing um, you know, timely feedback and timely uh, communication and quality, uh, quality living standards and, and property management. So um, those two go hand in hand. Uh, and it's a, probably part of the reason why Andrew and I still, you know, four years later are spending a, a large percentage of our time personally managing these properties. So. We'll have to move away from that at some point, but it's going to be hard. Right, right. You know, you but I think that that is uh, critical to success because right now you guys are seeing a lot of competition from people that want to get into the real estate market. And um, I think what a good lesson to draw from you guys is that you have to do it with a lot of thought and a lot of care and a lot of effort because a lot of people say, oh, I just want to take the money. I want to put it in real estate. But um, maybe you can do that if you have some good people working with you uh, that would take care of those assets. I once had a friend of mine tell me, you know, I wish this passive investment would be a little bit more passive. <laughs> um, and would, you guys have an interesting background. So George is, uh, has a banking background. You were at MB Financial? MB for, Financial Bank for a little, uh, about seven years. Yeah, and then Andrew was uh, and is an attorney. Um, that used to work for a company that helped sell distressed assets. And then you guys decided to come together and start to pool your resources, and time and energy and um, skills in order to make this, this project go forward. And so you guys both come with different, a diversified skill set. And then you're not just saying, 
hey, we're just going to raise a bunch of money and we're going to buy properties here, here, and here, and we're just going to hope that it works out. You guys put the legwork in, literally, down on the south side, looking for um, deals, looking for acquisitions, and also managing these properties, getting to know the tenants, and understanding who you're working with and who you're doing business with and trying to uh, work with them and understand them. And then also, you're right on the properties all the time. I think people need to realize that if they're gonna get into real estate and they're gonna make it successful, that uh, you have to come to those projects with skills and then also apply those skills and, and time and energy and maybe even a little bit of love you know, because, you, you know, like you said, you look at 85 deals and you'll choose one. And um, I know that uh, the first project you had, you guys sold that one, right? Which is not your typical model. Um, did it hurt a little bit to sell that first deal? <laughs> it depends on who you ask. Um, yeah, we, that's, our model is not to, to flip properties. Um, Specifically, apartment buildings. That's not what we're we're doing. Uh, you know, kind of the thought process was we'll, we'll build a portfolio and um, ride it through a couple ups and downs and, and see you know six, seven, eight, nine, ten years from now where we stand and, and how we're doing and what we feel like doing from that point. But um, the first property we bought, which is a, a unique property, uh, it was a condominium failed condominium project that we ended up buying at one point at the, the the first blush was 15 to 16 apartment or condominium units from a bank and then we then uh, went forward and purchased the final 16th unit from the uh, the one woman who unfortunately was the only person to buy a condo in that building uh, through a short sale so it kind of worked out for her as well worked out for us we got the whole building um, deconverted it to a, a single property identification number which which dropped the taxes down and um, managed it pretty successfully from a real problem building that was causing a lot of problems on that block to a real successful building. Um, we went back and forth a lot about selling that property or not because we had some offers come in that were unsolicited that were way higher than what we would have you know, valued the property internally. And um, I don't know, probably six months, seven months of deliberation <laughs> between the two of us, we finally decided to to cut ties with it. Um, that was the only project that we owned that we didn't do all of the renovations ourselves. So that was kind of my one piece to, to my argument was, hey, we don't know the guts of this building as well as we know the guts of all our other buildings. Right. And this building was done, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years ago. We're gonna maybe potentially hit some CapEx problems here. Um, I'll kind of clean clean the plate and, and, and have only our own, our properties that we've renovated. So that was my, <laughs> my piece but it worked out to be a really good deal i definitely was not in favor of selling the building but economically it made sense for us to be able to do more deals in the future and and buy more buildings and you know change the face of neighborhoods it, it made sense to sell that the, the price was pretty sweet um just to give you an idea we don't mind talking about numbers um you know i think it's more interesting for the listener uh, yeah. Somebody in between 04 and 06 dumped somewhere in the realm of a million and a half to $2 million into a building. Um, Where was it? Uh, in South Shore, um, a neighborhood that's nicknamed uh, Terror Town. 
Um, some some others would call it over east. Uh, it's pretty far east in South Shore. Parts of South Shore, Harrytown. Not all. Of, not yeah, all. very small. South Shore is a very large neighborhood in Chicago, but um, would be in kind of the middle of, of South Shore. I don't want to give the address away, but sure. Um, you know, someone spent a lot of money renovating it. Uh, one of the partners uh, took off. Uh, he was. Um, it may have taken off to Brazil, Eastern Europe, who knows where he, he, he left. And Close. left a large yeah. obligation <laughs> to his partner, uh, who then lost it to uh, back to the bank, who had loaned him an extraordinary amount of money to do a condo deal, uh, probably on the, the small chance that Chicago was going to get the Olympics, um, and Jackson Park was going to be a huge hub for, for the Olympics. Um, Spent all this money, sold one condo, realized it wasn't going well, lost it to the bank. Bank tried to lease it out uh, through a management company and, and rent out some of the condos. Uh, and, and in that process, the, the building just rapidly deteriorated. Uh, you know, vandalism, um, water damage, uh, all kinds of stuff. So when we came in, we ended up buying the building uh, for $350,000. Wow. Uh, so you can imagine a, a building that at, at one point had a million and a half to $2 million of, of renovation uh, was, uh, was bought for um, you know, less than a third of that, that cost. Um, we put about uh, $100,000, that includes buying the, the 16th condominium we put about $100,000 into the property um, and we financed it with a bank. This was done all cash. Uh, we financed it with a bank and they valued the property when we were finished adding value and, and leasing the apartments out to, to good tenants uh, at $750,000. So uh, you take an asset that, that from our value standpoint was worth $450,000 and turned into a $750,000 asset. Um, and then you know, we held on to it for three years. It, it cash flowed uh, wonderfully. Uh, but at the end of those three years, we realized, as George said, all these, these furnaces and, and plumbing and air conditioners that the original uh, developers had put into the building uh, we're starting to deteriorate and we were slowly um, having to spend a lot of our cash on air conditioners, furnaces, sure. renovating, updating the units somewhat. Uh, you know, they, they were getting tired after, after a decade. And with all that spending, we realized, well, hey, someone came and offered us uh, 850000 and we said, well, that's pretty good, pretty good value for us. And it, it was much too difficult to, to turn away. But that said, we also, in, in all that time, you know, the numbers are important, but you know, going back to our social mission, that corner um, literally transformed from a drug hustling corner to a nice quiet corner where there were no more hustlers. Um, you know, the, the guys were not pulling up to, to pick up loose cigarettes and drugs off the corner, you didn't have the drunks hanging out, peeing on the side of the building. 
um, which was literally happening when we bought the building. Um, the other thing that happened when we bought it uh, back in 2012 is somebody came and sprayed the front of it with bullets uh, three days before we closed. Oh yeah, I remember that. You guys, didn't you just get a credit for uh, the bullets at closing? We got a $900 credit for broken windows. That were it was 1100 1100 sorry. <laughs> you you got to factor in the bullet credits. But definitely a home run deal uh, for us. Well, the cool thing about Certainly. that project was one of the one of the cool things was that it had three retail street level retail spaces that we valued at zero when we purchased the building and we were underwriting it because you know who the heck's gonna lease retail space right in a tough neighborhood in 2012. especially re uh, commercial real estate that somebody may have gotten shot in had they been sitting in there in their office at the wrong time so um, but you know within nine to 12 months of, of purchasing the property, we had a um, adult daycare take two of the spaces which we can combine for her. Uh, she had a really neat business. She was a wonderful woman. Um, and we had the alderman uh, in the other one. So oh, that's a great we, we put we put really good tenants in, in the, the street level retail space that, you know, in addition to the apartments really helped stabilize that pocket. So it worked out really well. Well, that's nice. I mean, that also gives you um an ability to have a nice relationship with your alderman when you're the landlord. Yeah. But also, uh, do you find when you're looking at projects that uh, aldermen, local government, tries to, um, I mean, there's not much they can do to help, but they're receptive to you guys coming in there and trying to improve the neighborhoods, or do you just not even interact with them much? We've, I've spent time trying to reach out, and, and I would say it's, there's a, it varies. There's, there are aldermen who are, enthused about uh, helping um, when you tell them you're going to spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars renovating properties in their ward. Um, you know, they, they're enthusiastic. Uh, I've also run into other aldermen who don't even call you back or respond uh, in any kind of way. Uh, maybe they get an admin to, to call you back and say, stop by for office hours, um, which, you know, when you're spending a million dollars in, in a a neighborhood that hasn't seen a million dollars spent at one time in, in a long time, uh, to have a, a local politician tell you to, to show up for office hours is pretty frustrating. Um, but then there are other aldermen who, who were, will gladly take a meeting. Um, and it's just, again, it varies from, from neighborhood to neighborhood. And you can see why, in meeting some, some aldermen, you can see why um, some of these neighborhoods have stayed so distressed for so long. Uh, they're just—they almost feel like uh, the aldermen almost feel like they can't do much, and so they don't do much. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit because I want to go back to something you said at the start of our conversation, which is that you're considering looking into the distressed asset business, and I know Andrew, that's where you got um, started in your legal career, and. Uh, Thank you recently for introducing me to uh, the Clark Street Capital uh, Group. We're going to have uh, the founder of that company come speak at the Chicago Bar Association's Commercial Litigation Committee. Uh, they're putting on a seminar on April 11th, if anyone out there would like to come watch it um, on distressed asset buying and also the legal process. I'm the vice chair of that committee, so that's why I'm helping put it together. But um, let's talk about buying distressed assets because that's... That's a different animal than what you've been dealing with. So 
just for the listeners, um, buying parcel of property, you buy the property with the improvements, which is the building that's on it. Uh, when we're talking about buying uh, distressed debt, what you're talking about is uh, buying the promissory note that secures the mortgage. So when you go to buy a, your home or a property and you get financing from a bank, the bank puts a lien on the property, which is called a mortgage, and that's uh, secured by a promissory note, which is um, an obligation to pay. It's an IOU. So what happens is, is when these, when the debt becomes un, unpaid, when it's a non-performing loan, as uh, the banks will say, uh, sometimes uh, the banks or other companies that own these loans will sell them to third-party purchasers. They'll just cut their losses and say, we don't want to pursue this foreclosure, and we're willing to sell this loan uh, for whatever cents on the dollar that they might be able to to get for it, uh, but you know the trick to it is is that you have to complete the foreclosure, and so you're buying a lawsuit in addition to um, rather than just buying the property outright, uh, which could either be a, a routine process or it can be a challenging process. But I guess the companies that do this um, seem to, if you do it well, you can realize a lot of value from it because you're buying debt at um, a fraction of, of the, book, the book value. So you're an attorney, so you, and you've dealt with distressed assets, so you would be able to, you wouldn't have the initial uh, reaction to pull away from that because you understand how the process works. Um, what's attracting you to that market right now? Uh, again, it goes back to dollars and cents. Uh, also, Motiv it always does. It always does, yeah. Mo motivation from the foreclosing company or bank, um, when when they're foreclosing, they know they do not want to own that property. And so the prospect of them owning uh, the property or wanting to own the property is, is limited. So they want to get uh, either finish the foreclosure and dump the thing or you know, oftentimes, like you said, they're willing to uh, get rid of it, even pre-foreclosure. Sometimes, uh, but oftentimes, banks are willing to unload uh, loans even before they file a foreclosure action against uh, a, a non-paying borrower. Um, but for us, it's, it's, we're highly motivated to, to take the property back uh, because we're not going to buy loans across the board. We're not going to buy credit card debt. Uh, we're not going to buy consumer debt. Um, we, we literally want to own the property that uh, uh, that the loan is secured by. And so we're highly motivated in litigation to get that property. And sometimes that means doing a deed in lieu of foreclosure with the borrower, saying to the borrower, hey, um, you know, the prospect is not looking good for you here. Why don't you just give up, stop fighting in court, and hand over the keys? And sometimes that, that happens. Um, sometimes it doesn't. And as an attorney, I have to be able to understand how long it's going to take to get that property back. Um, and if you don't understand how long it's going to take to get the property back, you could have anywhere from you know 50000 to hundreds of millions of dollars sitting there waiting 
um, until you get the property back. And that money is not earning anything, it's just sitting there, because you, you've bought the loan, you own the loan, but now you're just bleeding money as you fight the foreclosure. And you're, you're probably paying the real estate taxes, because if the borrower's not paying the loan, they're not paying the real estate taxes, which is its own way that uh, its own lien on the property it could be something that you're going to have to pay the real estate taxes eventually if you buy the note in order to protect the property uh, from your rights to foreclose on the property. But I like your point about pursuing the borrower. If you're willing to, if your goal is just to get the property back and not to chase the borrower for what's called a deficiency judgment, uh, not to try to pin the rest of the debt on the borrower and chase that person and get them to pay up, and you just want the property back, um, you have an opportunity there to really decrease your litigation costs and increase uh, the time to obtain the title. And also, for me, understanding the, the, the building itself, understanding the asset um, behind the loan, and going to the property and often just knocking on the door and talking to tenants, saying, hey, what's going on here? Uh, are you paying your rent? Are you not paying your rent? And, and if you know how the asset's performing, or you know the receiver and the, and the receiver's willing to show you the property, um, you know a lot more than a, uh, someone in Florida or someone in California who's buying the loan. I can literally drive my car down to the building um, and, and look at it and, and know what the value, the true value of that property is. Oftentimes right. when big, bigger companies buy these pools of loans, they only analyze the metrics and they, they do look at the buildings, but they often don't get down in the nitty gritty and really understand who's paying rent and who's not. Um, and who's living there, what's going on? Is there gang activity? Is there um, drug dealing, whatever? So that, that's a big um, part of, of how we can be successful doing that. Um, and we have been successful once in doing that. Sure, I mean, in any market, if, you can, if you're competing against other buyers, but you have greater knowledge and greater, greater information on the assets, then that gives you an advantage. So um, being local and understanding the neighborhoods and the buildings, being able to go take a look at things gives you an advantage over the, the institutional buyers of distressed debts. Just, like you said, just go to drive down there and take a look at it. <laughs> well, you know, again, our goal is still on the property, so we have to the first thing we have to do in analyzing a loan that we're potentially buying is figure out what the property is worth to us in its current state or a year from now if we take a long time to you know get to the foreclosure process so we kind of back into that number you know what would we pay for this property today if it were for sale and then we say okay um what's it going to cost us in legal expenses to, to finish this foreclosure how much time is it going to take to do this factor in all the carrying costs, real estate taxes, insurance, all the stuff that you're going to incur during that time frame. And then, you know, we feel we're conservative in those estimates so that we have a number to say at the end of the day, you know, if the building's worth $200,000 to us, you know, we can pay $150,000 for the note and then we've got $50,000 for all the carrying and legal costs. So we kind of, we need to know, we know where we need to be at and then we back into the, the amount that we can pay for the loan. Um, looking at all the, the various costs associated and time associated with with actually taking the property 
um, sure. back. So it's a hard market to compete in, though, because we're so small, and we we don't have millions of dollars in capital sitting there where we could buy um, a bunch of loans. Which typically, the the bank or the company that that owns the loans wants to sell them in bulk, uh, so they'll find fifty or twenty five or a hundred or more distressed loans um, that aren't doing very well on their portfolio and they'll sell them off in, in bulk. And so for us to come and sort of pick off, you know, one, two or three loans um, is difficult. We're, we're competing against very large, very sophisticated, savvy uh, buyers who've been doing this for a, a long time and they can be, um, they can be very aggressive they should be very aggressive people. Um, you know, some people call them bottom feeders. Uh, you know, when you're buying heavily distressed anything, uh, you, you sort of fall into this category of, of a shark or a bottom feeder. Right. Um, what is your worst deal? Do you have a horror story for us? <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can point to a specific property, but, a, you know, a bad deal for us or, a you know, what would constitute a bad deal is um, blowing a construction budget. So, you know, we get our contractors in and we decide this building's going to need $200,000 worth of work. Um, and again, we kind of work backwards. All of our analysis is kind of working backwards. So we know where we want to be. So let's say it's $60,000 a unit. Um, is what we want to be all in at any property, no matter in, in the neighborhoods that we're operating in. Because um, that's based on the returns that we want to achieve and the rents that we know that we can get for our properties. We, we know roughly our total basis per unit that we can be in. So okay. we say, all right, you know, here, here's where we want to be at at the end of the day. Um, here's what we're going to here's what it's going to cost to get the building where we want it to be with all the renovations that we're going to do. Here's what we can pay for it. We can screw up that number about what the cost of the renovations are going to be. Um, you know, we rely on our, our GC team a lot for that, but um, you know, they may mis make mistakes. We make mistakes, so we can end up paying 15, 10, 15 percent higher than we thought we were going to for renovation costs, which um, can can make a deal look good to mediocre very fast. Um, timing can also be a just, just slow, right. being slower to deliver the property that we originally anticipated. Um, time kills real estate deals. So if it takes us 12 months to, you know, from acquisition to end financing, um, and then we thought it was gonna take six, that's six more months of, of, of lack of income um, that we can achieve from that property. So that's a, that's a big hit to our overall profitability on it. The third, potential problem um, that we've had happen once or twice is in the financing piece. So um, we buy all of our properties cash, we do all of our renovations cash, and then we lease them up so we have a, a renovated stabilized property that we then take to our banks and say, you know, can you put a, a five or 10 year loan on this property, a fixed, fixed rate loan. Okay. Um, which we found is much easier than trying to find banks to finance acquisition and construction costs, especially in, in these pockets at these numbers. Um, the, the trouble and the problem that you can have is if you um, you get to the point where you're 
asking the bank to finance property and they bring their appraiser out and their appraisal comes back much lower than we anticipated it to be. So that therefore means that our loan amount would be smaller than we originally anticipated in our underwriting, which means that we have more cash equity in a deal than we want to have in a deal, yeah. which affects the returns um, on that specific property. So um, that's, and that's kind of a, a crapshoot because these appraisers have, you know, they're, they're independent third-party people. They're, you know, coming in to make an assessment of what a property is worth, um, which is pretty simple in, in Wicker Park or Lincoln Park, but it can be very challenging in pockets where um, on one end of a block you've got a, a vacant distressed property selling at 10000 a door, and on the north side of the block you've got a stabilized asset selling for $75,000 a door. So you have a, a big range of, of what buildings are worth. Um, or what the appraiser thinks they're worth. So appraisal problems can, can be a, a problem for us, construction and, and time, I would say, are probably the three biggest uh, boogeymen out there in our deals. We d we've blown construction budgets before um, by you know large margins, but luckily George is, is so good at underwriting that we're, we're often really conservative with our numbers and, and so when we, we think a deal is going to be sour or bad by the end of it, it actually turns out to be often a, a pretty decent deal just because we're so so tight at the, at the entrance um, that, that even if we blow a, a construction budget by 12 or $13,000 a unit, meaning you know one apartment, uh, we want to be in at, at fifty-five or sixty thousand dollars. When at the end of the day, we're in that one apartment for seventy-two thousand. You know, we've gotten lucky a couple times where the the apartments have appraised for seventy-five or seventy-eight thousand. So we were we were okay, um, and, and actually ended up being in a, in a good position at the end of it. So nice. Well, guys. We're gonna wrap it up, but first, what's your favorite building in Chicago? Oh shoot! I always forget I like the name question. of it. Um, is it the Franklin? The Franklin Building. It's a beautiful orange terracotta property right on the the south end of the train tracks in the Loop at maybe maybe LaSalle. Is it? No, oh, it's the Fisher Building. Fisher okay. Building. Beautiful. I'm, yeah. I I love old. Old architecture. I love the, the old buildings in Chicago. They fascinate me. I could walk around yeah, you're in a loop right all day and just it. like Google and, and, and look at them all. Um, but that one always sticks out as a, a beautiful old building for me. All right, Fisher Building, Andrew. I'd have to say the the old main post office. That that building, uh, not necessarily from a from an attractive architectural standpoint. I would hope not. From a uh, <laughs> from a distressed uh, developer standpoint. It, it, by far the most interesting uh, deal to me. It's so big. It's, uh, it is a, and, enormous. And, and every time I drive by it, I think of a new new use or a new opportunity. So that, that would have to be mine. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you coming in here and sharing your story and your approach. Uh, it's real estate investing. And so, Andrew, George, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Phil. Thanks. thanks.
nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to, for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.